0: Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And, uh, Jacob is on youth staff and works uh, predominantly here at Southwood, but we get to work together on um, a lot of events and planning and leader training and that sort of thing. And uh, this is my last week with you guys uh, this summer, so thank you for, uh, for allowing me to come and, and serve you in this way and, and be here, and thank you for your encouragement that you've given me. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, the spiritual discipline of prayer this morning, and, and we're studying spiritual disciplines throughout the summer, and the reason is this, that naturally within all of us, we aren't naturally disciplined people. I mean, you may be disciplined in a certain area, but we can all point to to areas of our life where we wish we were more disciplined. We we, we wish that we had better control of the food that we intake into our body or better commitment to exercise or better commitment to spending time with people that we ought to. You know, we are disciplined in some areas, but there are other areas of our lives that, that aren't as disciplined as they should be. And the reality is the spiritual life is one of growth, through the practice of spiritual disciplines. The goal of the Christian life is this, godliness, that we would grow in our ability to look and behave and live more like God. The process to get there is through the pathway of spiritual disciplines. And this morning we're looking at a particular discipline of prayer. So I'm going to read for us from Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Jesus says this, When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words." So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom And the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, we are a community, a culture that loves to communicate. And if you don't believe me, um, all you need to do is look at the explosion of social media in the recent years, Uh, Twitter in particular has more than 140 million active users and 340 million tweets per day. If you're not familiar with Twitter, uh, you're not kind of on that bandwagon. What it is, is you communicate um, via a text message, 140 characters or less, and there are over 140 million active users receiving and giving text messages, over 340 million of them. That's a lot. Facebook, some of you are more familiar with Facebook, um, otherwise known as Where Moms Put Pictures of Babies. Um, that's also what it's called. Uh, and there are over, right now, 800 millions, million users of Facebook. That's, that's a significant portion. They, they think by the end of the year, it's going to top over um, a billion users, but not just Twitter and Facebook. Um, text messaging. Um, when I first got a cell phone, we did a weird thing in that we called people, and you, um, you dialed the number, and you spoke uh, to a human, but that doesn't happen anymore, particularly in the younger generations, right? Uh, it's estimated, um, last year, there were about 7 trillion text messages sent worldwide. Um, that blows the U.S. debt out of the water, right? Right? Um, And more than that, uh, just thinking about teens, if you've got kids, they send around roughly 80 text messages per day. That's a lot of communicating. That's a lot of talking. Why is that? Why is there this explosion of social media? Why is there this explosion of communication? And And I think the simple reality is this, that we want to know about one another. We want to know what each other is up to. We want to know what each other is doing. We, we want to communicate. We want to send and receive messages. I mean, communication in a simple definition is this. Rightly responding or responding, doesn't have to be rightly, to messages uh, received or, re- or sent. And they could be via text. They could be via speech. They can be via sign. They could be via the vibe or the look. You know, communication comes simply by sending and receiving messages. And the reality is we are people that communicate, that love to communicate, but we've all seen this happen. If you don't communicate well, a relationship suffers. When I was in fifth grade, I got my first girlfriend and, uh... We met in kind of a weird way. Uh, We were at a D.A.R.E. conference. Um, You may not be familiar with that, but uh, the motif was D.A.R.E. to be drug-free. And so uh, on a Friday night, we gathered together at this D.A.R.E. conference, and and we knew that this relationship was destined to go somewhere because we already had common ground. We had nothing to do on Friday night. and so we're, we're at this DARE conference and we're hanging out together and we start talking and flirting in our fifth grade way. And um, a couple days later, I get a phone call from her friend who's there. And uh, this is how girls interact. Um, and so they're younger, they call on behalf of a friend. And they said, Hey, do you like Jessica? And uh, do you want to go out with her? Now, I had two older sisters, and so I knew what that meant. Go out meant uh, spend time with or spend hours on the phone in conversation back in the day. Now they just text, but back in the day, it meant you spend hours on the phone talking. And because uh, I watched my sisters do this, and I said, okay, well, I, I, I responded like any fifth grader would. When a girl thinks you're cute and is interested in you, what do you say? Yes. Right. Of course. Of course. And so Jessica started this little romance. And so we spent time talking on the phone, communicating, sending and receiving messages. Um, And eventually she decided that, uh, okay, this relationship's got to go to the next level. And because I was in fifth grade, I didn't know how to take it there. And so she said, let's go skating. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, And so I said, no. And, uh, and suddenly this kind of barrier in our communication to, to go to the next level um, meant that we didn't call as frequently. We didn't, we didn't talk as much. We, we didn't send and receive the messages as well as um, we could. And eventually I just stopped talking to her. I stopped calling her back, Right. And about a month later, um, even though I had, um, I love you, Jessica, written on my book cover uh, for school, and and even though I had all those little pieces of of that, hey, this relationship is going somewhere, I get a phone call about a couple months later from her friend saying, hey, Jessica wants to break up with you. (laughs) And I said, okay, I guess this is ended. Now, why did I tell you that? Because honestly, I I feel like we do the same thing, whether it's with, with people or with God. Like, especially with God. I mean, in the beginning of a relationship, there's excitement. Like, there's exuberance. You, you want to go far. You, you, there's so much to know and to learn. And, and I can think back when I first started walking with God. I, it was the most excited I've ever been. Because I saw for the first time that there's a king of the universe that wants to have a relationship with an individual. And that individual was me. And so when I first started walking with God, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. I'm, I'm talking to people. I'm praying to him. But, but honestly, as, as, as time went on, those conversations became less frequent. And those conversations became less passionate. And what started as a, as a flame that was burning deeply dwindled. And, and I want to talk this morning about the spiritual discipline of prayer. Because communication, and in particular communication with God is so vital to your growth and the life within you to walk with God in power. And so we're going to look particularly at the Lord's Prayer this morning. And the Lord's Prayer is is the most common and the most quoted of all of Jesus' prayers. You've all heard this. And even as I was reading it, some of you were reciting it in your mind because you grew up in faith traditions where you recited the Lord's Prayer. And so it's very common to you. you. You already knew where I was going with it. But honestly, uh, what we see in this is, though, though we love to communicate, the question that we all have to would come to is this. Do we really need training in this? I mean, I know how to talk to God. I say, what's up? He doesn't speak. And that's kind of how we interact. Um, do I need training in this? What's interesting is that this location in Matthew isn't the only place that we see Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer. He also teaches it in Luke chapter 11 where the disciples ask him a specific question. He's, they ask him this question, Jesus, teach us to pray. And I think what's going on in their mind at that time is they're going, we're watching you interact with God in a deeper, more profound way than we are. So you've got you to clue us in on this. You've got to bring us along where you're going. Teach us to pray. And in Matthew chapter 6 in particular, what, what we're looking at, he, he teaches very similar words, a very similar prayer, but he's teaching it in a different context. He's teaching it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the most prolific and quoted teachings of all of Jesus. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said of the Sermon on the Mount, if, if culture would just live by the teachings in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we would not only solve the problems that we're currently facing between Britain and India at the time, but we would solve all the problems of the world. See, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the collection of Jesus' teaching, is, is the most prolific of all of his teachings. And in the middle of that sermon, he takes a step aside and he says, look, there's some things that I'm seeing within culture. There's some things that I'm seeing within the Jewish community that I've got to correct. And he corrects three um, practices within the religious community, the way they practice their righteousness. And one of those corrections he gives is the way that they pray. And so the reality is we all need correction in the way that we pray. And if you've ever experienced in your prayer life a dryness, Uh, a feeling that that, that I'm not connecting with God in the way that I want to, or maybe in the way that I see other people doing. The reality is we all need to grow in this area. And I'm not going to talk about everything there is to talk about in prayer, but I do want to talk about in particular what we need to gain from this prayer. John Stott says of the Lord's Prayer, he says this, The entire formula is less concerned with proper protocol in approaching God than to establish within the believer the right frame of mind. And so the Lord's Prayer isn't designed primarily for you to recite over and over again, although there's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. But it's primarily designed to get you in the right mindset when you approach God, to get you thinking in the right direction, Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon um, illustrated the Lord's Prayer in this way. He says, it's like a model or a map. It's like a model. He says, I know lots of architects that build models. What they don't do is climb into the model and try to live there, right? That would be weird. He says, it's a model. It's, It's a structure so that you can actually build something to live in. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is designed to show you. He also describes it as a map. It shows you the direction to go. It's like a map to show you how to approach God and how to talk with God. What we wouldn't do with a map is lay it on the ground like a map of Europe and say, I want to go on a vacation. I'm in Italy. Now I'm in France. Now I'm in Spain. I'm in London. You know, like we wouldn't do that. We would say the map shows you the direction to go. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is designed to do. It's supposed to, to affect our mind, to get us thinking in the right direction, and change our heart to pray in accordance with what God would want us to pray for. And so as we look at it this morning, I want you to think about it as, as a way to, to maybe change your mind as how you approach God, and what you think about when you talk to him. And so the first piece that Jesus lays out is basically a, a change or of, of our perspective, he says, I want you first, when you pray, to think about God differently. And in particular, he says this, I want you to think about your perspective of God. And then he goes on and tells um, at the beginning in verses 5 and 7, two things not to do when we approach God. Is there a wrong way to approach God? Well, according to Jesus, there's some things that we can do that will not promote growth, that will actually inhibit us. He says in verse 5, don't make a show of it. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward in full. And so the first thing he lays out is is this. He's like, when you pray, it's not about you. It's not about putting on a display. It's not about how good you are. It's not about, do you have the right language that you're using? Um, The the way that people would pray back then is they would would practice prayer by loading up different titles of God. And so they would say, oh, holy one, excellent, majestic. And and so the way that they would incorporate lots of words into the prayer, titles of God, they would say, man, that, that person's really spiritual. I mean, for us, we have our own kind of little ways of doing that. Um, people do the Lord God thing. Lord God, help us, Lord God, to Lord God, Lord. And it's like they're changing gears through it. Um, and suddenly you're like, uh, okay, they're praying differently than me. What's, what's going on here? Um, you've got other people and they're more verbose, you know, the, the way it, it seems like a formal conversation that they're having. And, and, and you may ask, and you may think to yourself, am I not approaching God correctly? And, and what God's answer is, 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 is look, if you just come humbly to me, And you don't make it about you. You don't make it a show. You just come honestly to me. That's what I'm looking for. He also says a second thing not to do. In verse 7, he says, look, don't try to twist God's arm into action. Verse 7, he says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. What he says, secondly, is this. When you're talking to God, he's not speaking against long prayers. Like, Jesus prayed long prayers. There were entire nights that he spent in prayer. And so, and so length is not what he's addressing. What he's addressing is that these, these people would literally recite cantations, and, and they would say things over and over and over again, trying to twist God's arm into action. They would be praying this prayer and they would be thinking like God's a divine pinata and my prayer is a stick and if I beat him enough times, he will produce what I want. He says, look, that's not the perspective that I want you to have on God. When you approach him, you're not trying to twist his arm into action. He says this, when you approach God, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about him as a loving father. Look with me in verse six, it says this, but when you pray, Go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse eight, so do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Verse nine, pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven. You see, there's something about fatherness that Jesus wants to communicate to us. And he chooses that word father intentionally. For some of us, we didn't have good fathers growing up. And so when you think about God as father, that could be a terrifying thing to think about because maybe your dad didn't love you in the way that he should have. But he didn't care for you. He didn't provide for you in the way that, that, that maybe a good dad should have. But, but what Jesus is trying to do is, is to correct our perspective of God because that's not how God interacts with us. And this would have been scandalous for him to say in that day. To the Jews, they would never use this term. They would never call God father because that was way too intimate, way too close. That was, that was way too personal. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. But when you approach him, look at him as a dad who loves you. And there's two characteristics I really think he's trying to weave into this. It's of power and love. A good dad is, is both powerful and loving. He is strong and caring. And, and when you come to him, he's not just trying to make a checklist and just saying, like, okay, you're asking me for something, whatever. Like, it's not that. It's a dad that's interested, that's engaged, that wants to know your heart, that wants to know what you're thinking, and is eager to provide what you need. It's power and love. The image that this brings into my mind is a friend of mine named B.J. Forguson. He's a youth pastor in Austin, and uh, I got to meet him in kind of a funny way. Um, I was uh, getting this sound equipment together. We were, I was a college ministry intern for a little while, and, and we we're getting the sound equipment to put on this event. And so me and my buddy Derek uh, get into his Honda Civic, and we go to this place to rent big, expensive, huge sound equipment. And so we're talking a huge soundboard, huge speakers, lots of technical things, and we're loading all of this into his Honda Civic, right? And so we're like, okay, and kind of putting this in here. And as we get back to the church, we're like, okay, we got to get like five or six guys to help us unload all of this. And so we go get BJ. Now, BJ is by far the biggest man I've ever met in my entire life, ever. Um, He played football at Rice University. And literally, if you put a football jersey on him, it would look like he's wearing pads. I mean, he is huge, right? And so he goes over to the car and he says, you need this soundboard? And he pulls out the soundboard with one arm, throws it up on one shoulder, and then goes, you need anything else like that huge speaker? And he grabs a huge speaker. It's like someone grabbed the door and he just starts walking. I'm like, you are crazy powerful. This is nuts. Well, and about a year later, I go back and I do um, a retreat for him. He was leading junior high at the time. And I go and I speak at this junior high retreat. And we get there and I watch him interact with junior high guys. Now, junior high guys are, by definition, a mess, right? And so they would run at him and they would claw. They'd grab his shoulder like, uh, you know, they would, they were crazy, right? And I would watch him interact with him and he would giggle and he would lift him up be like, ha you're crazy. You know, and he'd play with them. And I saw the way that this man, well, then I looked at his hands, right? And they were like big sausages, like big sausage. I don't know how he texts, like <laughs> they were huge, powerful hands. And I saw in this man this perfect blend of power and love. He had all of this power that could be terrifying, but he had this tenderness within him in which he loved people. And I think about it, I'm like, I'm like that's like God. That's like a good dad. You know that he can kick anyone's butt, and you know that he really loves you. And so you're safe. So the first perspective I want you to get when you approach God is this. He is a safe, loving, good dad that is eager to listen to you. He wants to know what you have to say. The second piece that he gives is this. Not just the perspective of God, but, but before you jump into your prayer... Before you start talking about what you need and what you want, because normally that's what I do. See, most of us don't don't have trouble um, picturing God as someone big and powerful. That's why we're going to him anyway, right? Like he's a big dude that can move stuff, and that's why I'm asking him things because he's got the power. But Jesus doesn't say, now just go with need. He says, look, I want you, before you jump into what you need, think about God's priorities. Think about what he's thinking about. He says this in verse 9. He says this, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Verses 9 and 10 in particular, when he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. If you don't know what a kingdom is, it's, it's basically this. Um, it's a king. It's a kingdom. It's a, it's a physical place to rule. And it's his rule. It's, it's, it's his agenda. It's, it's what he wants to do in that place. That, that's what a kingdom is. And so when we're praying this, hallowed be your name, we're saying, God, make your name honored. Your kingdom come. God, will you establish your rule on this earth? Your will be done. God." what you want to happen, will you make that play out in this world? And most of us don't move to that step next. And I think the reason is because we we may not understand exactly what we're praying for. We're not understanding what, what it is that Jesus is asking us to actually have happen. I mean, when we say this, your kingdom come, your will be done, what are we legitimately asking for? And I think we're asking for two things. We're asking God for his kingdom to come physically on earth. And I don't know what you, if you think about your prayer life for a moment, but I think probably 90% or at least the majority of our prayers are primarily centered around needs, but needs that would be met if this happened. So, so we pray for sickness, right? Right? We've got family members. We've got, we've got people that, that, have, that have disease like cancer or, or, or some other sort of disease. And we're like, Lord, will you heal them? We pray for financial needs. Like, like Lord, we're, like, we're, I've lost my job or, or things are getting rough here. Things are getting tight. Like, will, will you come and will you change this environment so that we can be financially secure? We pray for um, relational needs. Lord, I, I feel lonely. I feel, I feel like I'm not connected with people around me. Will you bring me friendships or, or relationships to, to meet these needs within me? And, and most of our prayers are centered around needs that, honestly, if this actually happened, if God's kingdom was to come here physically, all of those would go away. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says this, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna set up his rule and it says this, the wolf will lay down with the, the lamb, the lion with the ox. What does that mean? The wars that are fighting and raging will be at peace when he comes. He says the child will play with the cobra, which is a crazy picture because I would never let my little two-year-old daughter play with a viper, like it wouldn't happen. But, but an environment's gonna be created where these things that are hostile and violent with one another are going to be brought to peace. So, what we're asking for is the culmination of history. We're asking God to bring His kingdom on earth and reign physically here. In Revelation chapter nineteen and twenty, and if you've studied with our um, with Buck and, and Jason, these other guys that are that are going through the end times, what they'll tell you clearly. There's going to come a moment when God calls time and this whole world ends and Jesus comes physically on earth and destroys everyone that is committing evil and brings peace for a thousand years. That's what we want. Because when Jesus comes and reigns physically, every need we have, every, every pain that we suffer will be brought under his reign and his control and he is good. So we're praying your kingdom come. You rule this earth according to your design because you're a good dad who loves us and will rule rightly. But we're also praying a second piece. We're asking God's rule to come and rule spiritually. You see, the, the kingdom um, right now is in the already not yet portion See, God has already done many things, like Jesus came, he died for sin, he forgives us of all that we've done, like he's already done a lot, but our world right now isn't experiencing that level of peace and and harmony that that we all long for, that we all want, but Jesus has a, a kingdom program right now that comes spiritually, and he does that in several parables. You can look them up later on. Matthew chapter 13, he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows. It's the smallest of seeds, but it grows to be the largest of trees. He says the kingdom of God is, um, is, is like a like seed that a sower sows and it grows up at different levels. It's like leaven that, that a baker puts into bread and soon it, it covers the whole loaf. And what he's saying is this, the kingdom of God is something that starts small and grows big. He says, look, when we're praying for the kingdom to come, what we're saying is, look, that the truth of the gospel, the seed of truth, would land into the hearts of men and spread. We're praying that God's kingdom would rule spiritually through the individuals we interact with. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, you rule this place, that means that God is taking enemies and making them friends. Um, a funny illustration I heard of this um, is, is this. The reality is we, we all have enemies in the world. And even the United States as a nation, we have enemies that we're fighting, whether it's terrorism or something else. And, and, and the question is, like, what, what would we want to happen? Like, what would be the best thing for the, to happen? Well, to blow them all up. Like, We can get a big bomb, we can go over there and just like, destroy them all, right? And what would be better is that if God took this person that was hostile against you, that wanted your death, and somehow there was a bomb that could go over, and it could explode, and somehow it makes everyone like you, and you like them, and suddenly instead of wanting to be hostile and and destroy one another, suddenly there's love, and and harmony, and, and peace, and And they worship God and we worship God. And and it's not that we were destroying one another. Like like somehow these people that were hostile to us are brought close. And God's saying, what I want you to think about is the fact that there are people far from me that I want to be in the kingdom. I want them to know me. I want them to, to experience what life is like in a vibrant relationship with me. So when you pray, you approach God as a loving dad. You pray for his kingdom to come. That is the perspective I want you to have. And then we can talk about you. Let's talk about what we need. And he moves on in, in three different points to talk about us as individuals. What, what we need. Meeting us where we are. And the first thing he says is this. Align yourself with him by doing this. You, you bring your needs to him. In verse 11, it says this, give us this day our daily bread. And so what are we asking for in that moment? Like what, what, are, we, what are we getting at? Well, bread was the staple diet of the average Jew. It, it was the simple thing that the sustained life. And in one level, he's asking us to pray in our daily food, like, like pray that God would give you the basic needs to, to sustain life. But let's be honest, in America, You're not worried about starving when you go home. You're like, oh great, I have to eat pasta. You know, I mean, there's not, we're not fearful of of not getting our daily needs needs met. And I think this goes beyond that. I think what Jesus is saying is this: in light of the kingdom, and in light of what I'm wanting to do in this world, you and I lack. We don't have all the pieces we need to carry out his kingdom program in this place. Like, there are pieces that we need. And he's really saying this. um, He's saying this Give me the resources to fulfill your work in me. Give me the pieces I need so that I can sustain a life that brings honor to you and is satisfying to me. Give me those tools. And what he's really saying is this, that this means that we are inviting God into the mundane of our life. That means we're saying, God, I'm inviting you into me. Like, help me because I lack so much. And I think what this, is, this is so helpful because, because God is eager to meet these needs. And this is the point in the prayer when we're saying to God, okay, this is my concern. This is my frustrations. And if you think about your prayer life and if I think about my prayer life, the majority of my time is spent here. And this is why I'm not going to spend that much time here. Because I don't think we need a lot of training on how to complain to God. I think we've got that down, right? God, this is what you're not doing. This is what I want to have happen. And God's saying, yeah, I, I invite you to bring that to me. But I hope you put it in the right perspective. I'm a God who reigns. I'm a God who cares. You have needs, but keep them in right perspective. The next piece that he lines out is this, that we bring him our sins. He says this in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. What he says this is, is sin is basically can be described as like a debt. It's like something that you owe. And we all interact with sin in this way. We think about it as a debt-debtor relationship. If someone wrongs you, if someone says something um, bad to you, you feel like they took something from you, like they stole something from you, and they owe, you, they need to pay you back or you need to pay them back. Like, like we feel it as a debt-debtor relationship. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, well, at this point you, you bring in the things that you have done to offend your relationship with God because you owe him a debt. Romans says the wages of sin, the payment we deserve, is death. And the great news is that at the cross, Jesus canceled out all debt owed. He says that he redeemed us. That means he paid and he bought us out of the very real debt that we owe God. The wage that we deserve is our death and eternal separation from God. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died the death we deserved to pay that debt. It was owed, it was real, and it it was paid. And the reality is, when we think about sin, oftentimes we're, we're easier on ourselves than we are on others, right? Like, we want grace for me and judgment for them. Like, that's typically how we respond. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you ask God to forgive your debts. And then you think about who you're not forgiving. You think about God's forgiveness of you. And you think about that person over there. And see, this this idea comes up over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. Um, He goes uh, in Matthew chapter 13 to Simon's house. And Simon was a Pharisee. And there's a woman that comes to Jesus' feet. She comes weeping at his feet. And she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And Simon's sitting there and he's thinking to himself, he goes, he goes okay, if, if Jesus knew her background and what she's doing, like he would tell her just to step off, like get off. And this is, and Jesus then looks at Simon because he could read the hearts of men. And he says, Simon, I'm going to tell you a story. There's someone that owed 500 denarii, which is equivalent to about 500 days wages. So $60,000, let's pretend and there's someone else that owes 50 denarii, which is like 50 days' wages, which is a couple thousand dollars. And say the master, or the debt that they owed, the master forgave both of them. Who would love the master more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one with the, the greater debt. And Jesus said, he answered correctly. You see, the problem is, the reason we find it so difficult to forgive others is we don't see how deeply we've been forgiven. The reason it's easy to pass judgment on them is because we don't see the very real need for forgiveness with us. And Jesus says, I want you to put that in perspective. You've been so loved, and no one's getting away with anything. Either someone is gonna spend eternally separate from God in a very real place called hell, or, all punishment is going to go to the cross and on Jesus. No one gets away with anything. And no matter how much you want someone to get what they deserve, the worst punishment you can render is nothing compared to God's. And he's saying, I want you to think about the debt you owe to God. And when someone else wrongs you, I want you to think the worst punishment you could ever render a person is nothing compared to the eternal torment they they could have and so you forgive them and you love them and you hope that they might come and know the god you serve and the last piece he gives is this he says forgive us our trespasses and what he, what he does is he, he puts this, this whole thing into context. He says, look, as we're living our life and as we're, we're trying to, to usher in his kingdom, to be a people that, that are getting our needs met, that are loving others well, he says, look, there's going to come points when we suffer temptation, when we, we have the, the desire to stray from God's calling us. And the, what he says is this, he calls this temptation, the source of it, the evil one. C.S. Lewis, um, Oxford professor, he says this in Mere Christianity. One of the things that surprised me when I first started reading the Bible seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who held the power of death and disease and sin. Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God, was good when he was created and went wrong. See, Christianity believes that there is a very real source of evil in the world, and that is the devil. That is the evil one. And there's also a second piece that he wants us to grab. We need, first of all, to not submit to him. We need to to run from him because because he is trying to pull us off mission. But there's a second reality that C.S. Lewis goes on to say, and I love this. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are you're really listening in to the secret wireless of our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. I love that. Like you're little CIA operatives, right? And you are designed to resist temptation, to pray, God, okay, take from me the desires to run from you because I want to be on your mission, not his mission. I want to be bringing your kingdom, ushering your kingdom into this world. So, so give me the mind and the heart to love you so that I can be a part of that. And help me be on mission with you through this great campaign. Um, you ever seen the movie Robin Hood? No. Talking about the old one uh, with uh, with Kevin Costner. Familiar with that one? You're like, oh yes, yes, yes. So the, the newer one, no one watched because there was, uh, there was, it was confusing and it was weird. Um, but the old one, Kevin Costner, um, Brian Adams had a great song in there. Right? Um, <laughs> you see this picture play out. Right? He was off fighting the Crusades and he comes back to his homeland, and and there is a, a sheriff of Nottingham that's ruling. And the people are oppressed. The people are are dissatisfied with life. The people are not living um, a fruitful, joyful life. And so Robin Hood does the best thing that he can do. He goes and gathers up some merry men. They go build tree houses, which as a 10-year-old watching it, I was very excited about the tree houses. And he starts waging a campaign of sabotage against the one in power. Why? Why? Because he wanted the rightful king, Sean Connery, <laughs> to come riding in and set everything right. You and I, as we engage with God in our prayers, as we think about him, we think, okay, God, you're a loving dad who wants to, to satisfy our needs You've got a kingdom. You've got your own agenda that you're bringing to this world and and help me wrap my mind around it. Help me engage with it because I don't do it naturally. And as I think about me, help me see what I'm lacking. Help me see what I'm missing so that I can be on board with you for your mission in this world. Um, We're going to celebrate with communion this morning. And so if you're the men that are helping with communion, I encourage you to get up and, and walk to the back. For us, I just want to think about a couple applications that um, may help you in your prayer life. And it's simple. And I would encourage you to this. First of all, you pick a place. See, oftentimes I think we neglect our prayer life because we, we honestly, we don't pick a place that's consistent um, where we can actually engage with God. We can, we can think about him. We can, we can worship him. And I also encourage you to pick a time. Pick a time that works for you. Uh, For some of you, it's going to be early in the morning. For others of you, you're just like, I can just barely open my eyes. It's not going to work. Maybe it's during lunch hour. But you pick a time for you to engage with God, to think about him, because some of this is going to take a little bit of time. And lastly, you be consistent. You say, I'm going to make this a, a, a regular part of the life that I live so that I can wrap my mind about what God's wanting me to do and I can be effective for his call on my life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you, Lord, that you came and you lived a perfect life. You, um, you died the death we deserve to die. You forgave us our debts. And Lord, that also bigger than that, you, you are promising a brilliant future for all of us. So Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to love you to pray to you, to meet with you, so that our lives will be full. Father, we love you. I lift up these people to you. Let's pray. Amen.